Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. All right, Joe, uh, coming off of Monday's travesty uh, in NLA from just the standpoint of maybe one of the worst championship games we've ever seen. I think you could flip a coin when you're debating as to whether the 21 to nothing Alabama LSU slugfest that I went to was worse or the 65 to seven, just throttling the Georgia put on TCU that friend of the show, my cousin, Jack, the, the TCU student went to don't know which one is worse. They were both terrible. Um, at least TCU did score a touchdown and had, I think at least 10 plays inside of the 50 Meanwhile, that game that I went to, LSU had one play over the 50-yard line. The, I mean, I don't know. I think that that would be the first debate as which championship game was worse. Because, you know, you have the Alabama-Ohio State game a couple years ago. That was pretty competitive for a half before they, they, they blew them out. LSU-Clemson kind of the same way. Clemson-Alabama, when the one where Clemson beat them pretty badly – I think Alabama was in that game for about a quarter and a half before it started going south. This one, though, it reminded me of the LSU-Alabama championship in that TCU was never in this game. What about Alabama-Notre Dame from 2012? I saw some similarities Ooh, with that. That's, that. That could be a winner right there because you could see from the very get-go that outside of – oh, that tight end that Notre Dame had that played for the Bengals for a long time, they didn't have a single player that matched up with Alabama. And you could even see it on the field with the size differential. Mm -hmm. That one would maybe be pretty close right here to this one because that was that was a bad game. Yeah, that's the one I, I thought about, even though I know I think Notre Dame scored 14. I felt like that was kind of in garbage time, if I remember correctly. It, it I was. I think they scored 14. Well, and it was similar in the by the end of the first half, you already saw that Bama was going to destroy them. Yeah, I think it was like twenty-eight to nothing at one point, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. So well, I thought about that, but but overall, though, Dan, my takeaway too was that I think it was the most lopsided championship game I've seen at any level in any sport. Score wise, it's, it's it's hard for me to think of one that even compares to it. You know, if you go to the NFL. When the Seahawks beat the Broncos with Peyton Manning, that one was pretty awful. And it began, like, you know, when they snapped it over Peyton's head and you had the safety, that was just a foretelling of what was going to come that entire game. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, what, what stood out to this one for me, I guess, would be just the score differential. I can't think of one 58 points with, with any championship game. Well, if I were to tell you that Georgia beat somebody 65-7, to you would think it was when they were playing Furman or Valdosta State or a Division II team. That's what that sounds like, that kind of score. Um, yes. I mean, there's a lot of basketball games where teams win basketball games where they score less than 65 points. Mm -hmm. No, that that's a good point. And I think for them not only to do it, to the competition with TCU, but to do it on this stage, uh, to me, that, that just really impressed me because you always see a lot of teams play tight on stages like that. No, in Georgia, I mean, wh what really surprised me about this game was not only were they more physically imposing, I mean, that was what we were expecting, 
was that they seemed to be better coached and they had a better game plan than TCU on offense and defense. I mean, I think Todd Monken made himself a whole lot of money in that game because he was just destroying Gillespie, the TCU defensive coordinator. He looked like to be three or four steps ahead of him on every play. The TCU defenders just seemed to be completely doe-eyed and, you know, not following their assignments. And the safeties at TCU looked atrocious. I don't even know if they were playing in that game. I mean, I asked my brother when I was watching with him, I was like, do they even have safeties at TCU? What what, what are they doing back there? Because, I mean, it was just over and over again, McConkie getting past everybody, Bowers getting past everybody. And they just didn't seem to have any uh, backup safety support on, on the on the back end at all during the game. Yeah. Yeah, and then the rushing touchdowns by Bennett, I mean, he wasn't even touched. It was just effortless getting in the end zone. He literally could have ran in backwards 20 yards on some of those. I mean, it was it was crazy. And so, I mean, what I was expecting was I was expecting Georgia to be able to run it well, that Bowers would be a matchup nightmare. I thought their defense would get a lot of pressure and that, you know, Duggan would, would have a little bit of trouble. But what I didn't expect is what I saw with – Georgia having just such a clear, uh, a clearly a better game plan, that much better coached. And for Duggan to really just have a bad game that in a lot of ways wasn't even caused by Georgia. If you were watching that, and I was talking with my cousin Jack about this earlier, I actually thought the TCU's offensive line did a very good job at holding up against Georgia. I mean, it wasn't like Max Duggan was going to be ba- was back there for two seconds and then was getting hit. A lot of it was him just holding on to the ball for too long, waiting too long to take his chance to run it, and just overall not being sharp. I mean, he to me looked like the quarterback that was the second-string quarterback at TCU during that game. Right, right. You would have thought that he came in for Chandler Morris maybe for that game and had not played you know, the full season and was the Heisman runner-up. Exactly. I mean, you would have thought that Chandler Morris was the one who was the Heisman runner-up and they brought him in. And it was just, you know, and I hated it for Duggan because he's been such a clutch player all season and really been the guy that they leaned on. I mean, of course, you know, Quinn Johnson uh, was their main receiver and helped out a lot all season. Condre Miller uh, was, I think, one of the top five best running backs in America. And, of course, not having him in this game made a difference. But, I mean, what, maybe they score 17 points? That's kind of what I would say not having Miller in the game does. Uh, you know, the bottom line was they needed to have Georgia play a D-plus game and they needed to play an A-plus game to have a chance to win. And I think in retrospect, that's what happened with Michigan is Michigan probably played their C-minus game and TCU played their best game of the season. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. And then, you know, you got to think if you're Ohio State in Michigan right now, you're kicking yourselves, especially Ohio State how close you were to winning probably the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, Ohio State, I think, played Georgia on a C-plus night, and they played their A-plus ball, and it just wasn't enough because their kicker missed it. But that was what it was going to require for them to win that game. I think that Ohio State would have beaten TCU, but it wouldn't have been anything close to 65-7. to And and I think in a lot of ways, TCU got scared of the jersey. I think that they hadn't really had that happen the entire season. Because even Michigan isn't quite that jersey. There's only a few that are like that. You know, and Georgia wasn't like that until recently. But now they've risen to that point where you see it and you know they're more athletic than you. 
you know they've been there before and you know they've done it and there's a few programs that are like that Alabama Georgia and Ohio State are really the three that I think can strike that into an opponent and TCU hasn't played anybody like that all season including Michigan yeah yeah I mean this is you know a program you know that's not that far removed from being a Mountain West program you know they've come a long way you know, 12 years ago, they won the Rose Bowl with Andy Dalton. You know, that was just a great story. And now here they are, you know, on the biggest stage trying to win the whole thing. And so, yeah, I think there's definitely that psychological hurdle that they had to conquer and could not conquer. And then I think about with the offensive matchup, how much credit you have to give Todd Munkin because he's in charge of this offense. You know, Kirby Smart's a defensive-minded head coach. And Georgia won a national championship largely on the strength of their offense Mm -hmm. and you know that kind of goes back to how well he worked with the offense in a year where outside of Bowers they don't really have any elite pass catchers and their running backs you know it's not the household names that they've had in the past yeah and that's that's one of the more impressive things to me is that their passing game was really what what rode the boat this year for him I mean you know Bowers was such an incredible weapon he's the unicorn he's a guy that Next year, I mean, if he's not a top five draft pick, then I don't know what NFL scouts are there for. I mean, in my mind, if I was a team that had a quarterback and I had my first-round draft pick, it's going to be Brock Bowers because, to me, he is a more athletic, faster Rob Gronkowski. Mm -hmm. And it seems like he's ready for the NFL now. Like, it's almost, you know, a disservice he has to go back next year. It makes me think of, you know, when Trevor Lawrence – won the national championship so bad, beating Alabama so bad the first year. The second year he came in and, you know, single-handedly got them into the game against LSU. And you're like, wow, he should have gone out the year before that, this year. Then you have to wait one more year, and he's not quite as good as last year that he's there. And I wonder if you're maybe you're going to see a little bit of a downturn in Bowers because it's almost like he should just be going playing on Sundays right now. It was, I guess, Jamar Chase with the 2020 season. I guess he opted out kind of in a similar situation. Yeah, I mean, COVID. yeah, but for COVID purposes. But I, I don't see Bowers doing anything like that. He just, you know, he he has a chance, Joe, to win three national championships in a row, a legitimate chance. I mean, the last person who had an opportunity like that was A.J. McCarron. Yeah. And, and, and I forgot about him. I was trying to think of an SEC starting quarterback that had two national titles as the starter, and I completely forgot about McCarron. Because technically Tim Tebow doesn't even fit that bill because Chris Leak was the starting quarterback that whole season. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the only two, McCarron and uh, Bennett, the only two SEC quarterbacks with back-to-back uh, national championships to start. Yeah, they're the only ones that I can think of in, in, you know, in my lifetime. Now, maybe – if you go back to when Bear Bryant was at Alabama, maybe one of those quarterbacks did it, but I'm not even sure that any of those ever did it. Yeah. I think, I think Joe Namath only won one. I think Richard Todd only won one. Kenny Stabler, maybe Kenny Stabler. He'd be the only one that I think is a possibility that he won multiple national championships while he was at Alabama. Yeah, so to me, it just adds to the unlikeliness of, you know, the the Stetson Bennett story, you know, that we all know about Hollywood-esque. Joe, I mean, I think that 20 years from now, you and I grew up watching Rudy, you know, playing the music, you know, everybody being like, man, Rudy's awesome. What an inspirational story. Well, Rudy got in, what, three plays against Georgia Tech after being there for, you know, four years. 
And meanwhile, Stetson, at 25 years old, has been there for six years, won back-to-back national championships. There's going to be a movie that comes out within the next five years that's just going to be called Stetson. And it's going to be like the Rudy movie, except it's going to be so much more meaningful because Stetson really accomplished something. Mm-hmm. No, he, he did. And, you know, I, I think back, you know, to just the entire journey. I've known people that have had a class with him when he was at the community college, at Jones College here in Mississippi. Actually, ironically, Georgia fans that live here in Mississippi that knew him. And I just think about that full circle going from walk-on back to Georgia, you know, didn't have a chance to start at first and then two national titles. I mean, the closest thing to uh, the Stetson story before him was Baker Mayfield, who ironically, his one chance at winning the national championship, Georgia is the one who, who took him out in 2017. And, and Baker was the closest thing we had to somebody like Stetson that was a walk-on that had to transfer in. And, you know, now Baker did win the Hosman Trophy, but he didn't get back-to-back national championships or even one. So the Stetson story is incredible. And if you look at what he did during the college football playoff, do you think there's any doubt that if they had the Heisman Trophy ceremony after the season got done that he would have won it? I think there's a good chance. I mean, you look at the numbers, you look at the clutch moments, and, and really it kind of surprises me when you think about you don't give the award after that because they, Never count, made sense bowl, to me. they count bowl stats and playoff stats for, you know, season stats. Well, and, you know, everybody is so in love with what Joe Burrow did at LSU, and it, it was incredible. Don't get me wrong, but what Stetson did was he tied his record in that national championship game. He got six touchdowns. You know, the big deal with Burrow was, well, look at what he did against Oklahoma. He got six touchdowns in that game. Well, Stetson did it against uh, TCU, and they sat him for the entire fourth quarter. I mean, he could have had eight touchdowns against that defense if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he could have. And, you know, and you're right, you know, to a degree – we give Stetson a disservice because we judge him with that walk-on mentality. But, you know, his numbers are right up there with, with anybody. Yeah, I mean, and everybody pegs, well, well Stetson's surrounded by five-star players, and he's got this incredible defense that helps him. Well, he does, but what happened during the three games uh, that mattered at the end of the season? Only one of them did the defense really show up, and that was the TCU game. They had to score 50 points to beat LSU. They gave up 30. And there was, you know, some miraculous plays and interception going off somebody's head. Uh, of course, Chris Smith's really heads-up play where after the field goal gets blocked, he waits for everybody and then sees that they're not going to do anything, picks it up and runs it for a touchdown. I mean, the defense in a couple of those games weren't great for Georgia. And then, of course, against Ohio State, they gave up 41 points. And Stetson had to leave a double-digit comeback in the fourth quarter there, which he did. I mean, he had Heisman moments, and he really did it, especially during the college football playoff. No, he he did. I mean, it, it, what was the stat that he was the offensive MVP of all four playoff games that he played in? Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, you know, you were mentioning uh, how good of a job that uh, Todd Monken did Something that the Jack pointed out to me today, and I was noticing it myself a little bit, but he really kind of shone a light on it for me, was Georgia was playing quick tempo the whole game, which is not something you think about with Georgia football very much. And I think that really threw TCU off because 
I didn't realize that all the teams that TCU had played basically in the last month and a half had been very slow, old-school, offensive, ball-control teams. Think about it. Michigan, that's about as old-school as you get in terms of the way they run offense. Kansas State, they might even be more Stone Age than that. Baylor, pretty much on that same level. And then Iowa State, the most backward of all of them and the slowest. And so this is what TCU have been playing for basically the last six weeks. And they were probably expecting a little bit more of the same with Georgia. And Todd Munkin ratcheted up the, the speed and went Gus Malzahn on them. And they were out of position over and over again. And they didn't know how to keep up with that tempo. No, that's a really good point. You know, great observation by you and Jack. And, you know, I think just a brilliant move by Munkin when you think about it in retrospect. Absolutely. I mean, and and so you had that going on. And then Duggan had by far his worst game he's had as a TCU starting quarterback. I mean, like I said, he had time to throw it, but he was waiting too long. He wasn't sharp. He was missing wide open receivers. And even his best play of the game was not a good throw. The one on the one touchdown drive they had, I mean, that guy, that should have been an easy touchdown. And Duggan hugging in the air for so long, the Georgia guy almost caught up to it. And when, he, when I saw that play happen, I was like, they don't have a chance because he can't even hit this pass right now. Right, right. Just completely off. And what was even weirder, Joe, was how skittish he was with running it. I mean, you think about what he did against Kansas State and what he had done the entire season was when that lane opened up, he would boom, take off, and that was going to get a 10, 15-yard run, sometimes more. There were those opportunities there for him against Georgia, and he wouldn't take it. And then – when he did choose to run was the completely wrong time to run and it would close up on him. I mean, it was just a very puzzling game from his uh, standpoint. Yeah, that is. And I I wonder if that kind of goes back, you know, psychologically, not only to the uniforms, but also just like the size and athleticism of like, you know, facing, you know, an SEC defense. Well, and that's exactly what I think. I mean, there was definitely psychological elements to it. And that was something else, too, you could see is, I mean, Kirby was talking about how he had a sports psychologist go in and talk to Georgia before the game. It didn't seem like TCU had that level of sophistication because nobody was even talking to Max Duggan on the sidelines. They kept showing him and nobody would talk to him when he's having this terrible game where he obviously needs somebody to calm him down a little bit. Yeah, he did kind of seem on his own on the sidelines. Yeah. Um, but something that, that Jack was telling me uh, about – the way what I was talking about with the safeties is that apparently all during the game, Georgia was doing formations where they'd be sending people deep, but they also had people crossing in the middle and TCU would have a safety. They would invariably choose to take the guy up front and then getting beat deep all, all games. The safeties were taking the under routes, I guess, because they were scared of Bowers and that was, was getting McConkey open so much uh, deep. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could see that getting him open. I also got to say, too, uh, I think it was the touchdown where uh, McConkie was on the right side of the end zone and slid to catch it. Uh, the Georgia radio announcer had maybe one of the best touchdown calls I've heard, which was McConkie on his donkey slides for the touchdown. <laughs> That's amazing. That is clever on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, something, too, that uh, Jack told me that I was thinking about is it almost seemed like TCU was so hyped up for this game that they lost their focus? Mm-hmm. I, I can see that. And I think that there's also that added pressure 
of, you know, when you're a program that's not like one of the three you were talking about, you don't want to miss an opportunity to win on this kind of stage. If you're George, you're like, well, we'll probably be here next year. You know, right. you got house money. TCU is like, we can't mess this up. And I think that that um, factors into. Yeah. I mean, you see it a lot of times too, that when you start getting down, it's so much easier to make those mistakes that take you even further down. You know, this game was close to getting out of hand, but it wasn't quite a terminal velocity until the end of that first half when it was 31-7 to and Duggan forces a throw right before halftime that gets another interception and Georgia scores again to make it 38-7. to I think 31-7 to is a much easier place to be in at halftime because still at that point you're theoretically within three scores, but once you're down four scores at halftime, that's game over. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely felt like that with the vibe going into halftime. And I was talking about the mistakes that TCU made, just bad mental mistakes. How about the play by Darius Davis where he's got a what looks to be a 30- or 40-yard catch, and he's running down the field, and he's got the sideline protecting him, but instead he holds the ball in his right hand. And Georgia players, once you give them that ball right there, they can punch it out. They will do it every time. And sure enough, I'm pretty sure it was Chris Smith just punched it right out. And they got the turnover. And at that point, Joe, I believe the game was 17-7. to And they would gotten a couple first downs on that drive. And that was an opportunity where if TCU could have taken what was happening, which was their defense is getting obliterated, but you put that second touchdown on the board or even a field goal and make it a one-score game, that is a whole lot different psychologically than being down about to be 24-7. to Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, that that shifted the pressure, you know, back to them you would have put some pressure on Georgia and suddenly you know you would have made it a game potentially absolutely you know something else that I want to talk about too and Jack confirmed this for me was as nice as this stadium was they had in LA it seems like they were very ill prepared for this game in so many ways you had this rain where they didn't close the roof and apparently that's not even a possibility um they didn't allow tailgating which is crazy to me and then, you know, I heard, too, that the whole place was just wet and, like, people were falling and hurting themselves all over the place. And you're probably going to have dozens of lawsuits, like, come out from this game. And it just seems like for an NFL stadium, a city as advanced as, as L.A., this was a really shabbily ran operation. Yeah, you know, and it's odd because they hosted the Super Bowl last year. You would think that this stadium would have been ready to host this type of event. But I have heard some people say that uh, the nicest NFL stadium right now is actually maybe uh, the one that uh, in Las Vegas where the Raiders play, uh, even though uh, this Los Angeles stadium in Inglewood is newer, I guess. It, it seems like maybe it just doesn't quite make that cut. And that might be what it is. I mean, in my mind, either have an open stadium or have a dome. I don't understand this, like, you know, having a partially uh, dome stadium. Now, the ones where you can have it open or you can close it, that makes a lot of sense to me, but otherwise, the way they had it in this was ridiculous because a lot, so many people are going to that game thinking it's Southern California, it's not going to rain, and then it's raining and it's cold and it's windy, and you don't have any support for these people. Yeah, that that is weird. You would expect a retractable roof there. Mm-hmm. But uh, Jack did say, though, that he thought that otherwise the stadium was very nice and that apparently – he was sitting in the nosebleeds, and he said it still felt like you had a good view. It's one of those stadiums where they designed it to where there really isn't a bad seat in the house. That's good to hear. That's good. 
I was also very happy for him to tell me that he sat next to nice Georgia fans, which that's a rarity in and of itself. And especially at a game like that where the way it was going, I was worried that he was going to have very negative Georgia fan encounters, and he didn't. That's definitely a plus for the surroundings. Yeah. Yeah, I think that maybe the game was so out of hand that Georgia people actually were being nice to TCU people. He told me he kept hearing over and over again Georgia fans saying that TCU fans were like the nicest fans they'd ever met. I guess even the most uh, callous fan base can be nice when you're winning 65-7. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we had that experience. That's not the experience I've had with Georgia fans in the past. There are some good ones. Don't get me wrong. We have a friend of the show, Kyle. He's a Georgia fan. There are there, there's a lot of good Georgia fans, but I do yeah. think on the whole they they can they can be rough. Uh, that's by far my worst road experience in terms of the way fans treated me. You got Penn State on the happy-go-lucky great side. Georgia's on the not very hospitable side. Gotcha. But I guess if Auburn goes there and loses sixty-five to seven, maybe they'll be nice then. Yeah, at that point, yeah, I think they would. Maybe. <laughs> Um, you know, speaking of Auburn, uh, quickly, uh, had a big win last night against Ole Miss. Uh, they kind of turned things around. They they won a good game against Florida to begin the SEC schedule. Then they lost a game at Georgia, which was a huge upset and was really you know put some people, Auburn people down. A uh, big win for Mike White. He's actually got Georgia at ten and three right now. Um, but then they followed that up by beating Arkansas at home by 13, which was a big upset, really got the crowd going. And I think Auburn now has won something like 25 games in a row at home. Um, and they followed that up with a road trip to Ole Miss, which while Ole Miss has been down lately, traveling to Ole Miss has always been a tough game for Bruce Pearl. So I thought that was a big win. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, you know, a lot of times those games that you're playing um, – you know, an underwhelming opponent, those can be the games where you can be like a trap game or, you know, maybe you come out flat. And so, you know, they definitely uh, came out in the second half and, uh, you know, took it to Ole Miss after a close first half. And, you know, so it's a a good win for Auburn. On the Ole Miss side, though, like we were talking about via text last night, the program's in a state of flux. You know, you've got fans um, largely checked out as far as the interest in the program, which is very unfortunate. And I think it makes it really tough with, you know, the success of the baseball team, even though the football team ended on a sour note, even anytime Lane Kiffin's your coach, you're going to have hype and interest. And so the basketball team on the men's side is kind of the irrelevant program on campus at the moment. And you feel like we're just moving towards the inevitable that there's probably going to be a a coaching change um, very soon. I mean, Joe, they have this virtually brand-new facility at the Pavilion, which they were building while we were in school there, finished after we left, which is one of the nicer basketball arenas in the SEC. And I was watching this game last night, and, I mean, it was a lame home atmosphere. No energy whatsoever. And, I mean, it almost felt like Auburn was playing in a neutral stadium the way it felt last night. Yes, yes. And and that's a a telltale sign in – the two things I would add real quick, when you built the nicer facility and the nicer arena, you expected recruiting and success to continue, but it's like it got worse, which is really odd. And then the second thing I feel like with the pulse of the fan base, when you've got people like me who are avid basketball fans, just not as interested 
I mean, I've always been frustrated sometimes that Ole Miss doesn't concentrate more on basketball because I love the sport. So we've got people like me that aren't following it as closely with apathy. I mean, to me, it's just a big indication that things are just not going, you know, in a good direction. That's right. I, I agree. I mean, that that is the sign that things have to change. What doesn't have to change is for everybody to keep watching our show. You can catch all of our episodes on Spotify, and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, the Dan and Joe Sports Show YouTube channel. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.